So let's cultivate our motivation before we begin. And feel glad to be alive, to have this precious human life, to have the opportunities that we have. And especially of the many qualities of a precious human life, that we have interest in the Dharma. We want to find meaning in our lives. We want to make a contribution to the welfare of others. So that's one part of us that is very precious, that we need to respect, and when we find it in other people, to respect it in them as well. And so to nourish our spiritual interest, our spiritual yearning, And even though we live in a world where there's so many worldly distractions, to keep our spiritual motivation and our practice front and center in our lives. And I think, too, to especially... uh, Rejoice that we have an interest in the Mahayana path, that we really seek to benefit all sentient beings, even though we're not capable of doing so right now, even though our self-centeredness is enormous. Still, having that aspiration is very special, very precious. And so to treasure that and nourish it and respect it in ourselves and in others. And so let's generate the bodhicitta motivation wanting to free not only ourselves, but all others from cyclic existence. And to do that most effectively, to become a Buddha ourselves. So this afternoon I was reading the Sutra Unraveling the Thought and uh, Paramatha Samagupnam that Bodhisattva (laughs) I think they called him Paramatha for short Um, yeah so 
the Buddha was speaking to him and uh, talking about practitioners with different kinds of dispositions and saying that those practitioners who had excessive fear of samsara uh, would enter the, uh, the shravaka or hearer vehicle and those with little love and compassion would enter the solitary realizer vehicle and then those who had a higher aspiration um, who didn't have those two impediments would enter the uh, the Tathagata vehicle. And so I was thinking about this, you know, somebody who has excessive fear of samsara because uh, we're taught to fear samsara, not fear in the idea of panicky fear, like, oh, but to be aware of the danger and to, you know, want to avoid that danger. So I was thinking, you know, we're supposed to have that. How can you have that in excess? Yeah, because, you know, if you saw anything good about samsara, then you wouldn't really aspire to be free about it free from it, so you have to see it completely as, you know, a dung hole. And so I thought, what does it mean, excessive fear of samsara, or excessive awareness of the danger of samsara? And what I think happens, uh, knowing people who, uh, you know, uh, really have very strong, like, aversion to samsara, I think what happens is that aversion centers on oneself. Yeah, I have strong fear, aversion to samsara because I see the horror in it for myself. And And although that's an important part of the Mahayana path, if we just do that, then we don't get to the Mahayana path. So I think what the key is always is I there's a version to samsara, but it's not just my samsara, it's everybody's samsara. Yeah. And then if you have that, then that helps helps to overcome the second impediment, which is weak love and compassion. Yeah. Because your mind is turning towards the welfare of others and cares about them. So that the uh, renunciation of samsara isn't just for oneself alone. Because if it is, you know, then we stay in the hero vehicle, the shravaka vehicle. So I was thinking about that. I think in the West we don't have... Uh, much danger of having excessive renunciation of samsara. I think our problem is excessive attachment to samsara. Okay, But just to be aware, when we are cultivating uh, the attitude that sees the defects of samsara, to cultivate it uh, always thinking of ourselves and others. Yeah, so that in 
in our whole practice and everything we do, the mind is uh, focused on the welfare of self and others. How will this affect me and everybody else? How will this influence me and everybody else? And to have that in our mind uh, and use it to develop uh, you know, our love and compassion coupled with that very strong aspiration to be free of samsara for ourselves and others. Yeah. You know how sometimes you read something and you've heard it before and then there's that word, excessive fear. What is excessive fear? Yeah, I just had to stop and... Think about that for a while. How can you have fear samsara too much? Yeah. Because if if you if you didn't, you know, if you didn't have that exceptional fear or that exceptional awareness of danger, yeah, like yeah, really, you see here, just as with bodhicitta. If we leave out one sentient being, one small thing, we don't have bodhicitta, we can't have enlightenment, gain enlightenment. Same with samsara. If we see one benefit to samsara, we're not going to have the aspiration to be free of it. Yeah? Because that one benefit is going (laughs) to... You know? So that's why you've probably heard the story of the monk who loved butter tea, who was so attached to butter tea. And when he was dying, his friends could see that he was craving butter tea. And they said to him, there's fantastic butter tea in Amitabha's Pure Land. Go there. And that caused him to be born in the Pure Land. Okay, what this story in, indicates is the time, you know, you're, you're attached to one small thing in samsara, and, you know, that then there's no, you know, no aspiration for liberation. So, I don't know what Amitabha said about that. If he, if he had a big cup of buttered tea waiting for this, this monk. Okay, so we're in the middle of chapter, what? Mm -hmm. Chapter 8, okay, The Essence of a Meaningful Life. And it's purely by coincidence Mm -hmm. that this, that we're in the middle of talking about the eight worldly dharmas on Friday night, and it's also what came up during the teachings uh, on parting from the four attachments, okay? So the point is you can never escape, yeah? Rinpoche sitting there saying the evil thought of the eight worldly dharmas. You know, no escape, okay? Why is it evil? Because it keeps us in samsara and it makes us miserable. Okay, so we've been talking about the eight worldly concerns and how they 
uh, really make us waste our life and waste our time. So we talked about financial and material gain and loss already. We talked about good and bad reputation and image. Actually, we're in the middle of talking about that. Okay, so we're on page 194, the third paragraph. Okay, so it, I, I'll read the paragraph just before that because it, it's very indicative of His Holiness. You can kind of hear, them, hear him say this. A member of my staff chided me, saying, I don't prepare my speeches well enough. Perhaps he would like me to make more astute comments about complex topics. However, I feel more genuine when I talk about what I practice and live myself. myself. When I do that, I'm not worried about whether or not others like my talk. Yeah? So... That's what he's telling us to do. So when you're asked to give a BBC talk, don't freeze. This is His Holiness's advice to you about how to give a BBC talk. Okay? Talk about, um, you know, what you practice and live yourself. Okay? You don't have to talk about, you know the intricacies of this and that theory about who knows what. So one time, a reporter from an important newspaper in New York interviewed me and asked how I would like to be remembered in history. Okay. Now, how would you like to be remembered in history? Yeah? How would you like to be remembered, either by your family or maybe future generations of monks and nuns at the Abbey when they look back at the history of the Abbey and who did what, you know? Or maybe, yeah, in, I don't know, some history book. Yeah, because somebody for sure will do their PhD thesis about the Abbey one day, you know? Won't they? Yeah, I mean, that's what people do. I'm sorry, your dissertation. You know, that's what they do dissertations about. Because I've had enough people send me their dissertations to check, and I know that. And they interview different groups and write things like, so how do you want to be known in the dissertation that somebody hands in? Maybe they're a student at Harvard, and their dissertation gets published, you know, and an excerpt about you is in the Wall Street Journal. How do you want to be remembered? Yeah? You want to be remembered like bumps on a log sitting there? Like right now? I think maybe you've thought about this a little bit. Yeah? Or remembered in your family? How do you want them to write your your obituary? You know? I mean, at some time, somebody's going to have to write your obituary and send it around so you can be on the prayer list of all these different Buddhist centers. Yeah, don't you want to be on their prayer list? I don't know if that doesn't exist. 
Huh? Oh, they'll have them by then. We'll make sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's good enough. That's what we have here. Yeah, your name's on, on the paper. It's read out loud. Yeah. But then sometimes somebody tells the story about you. Okay. Oh, you all looked. So. Okay. (laughs) You're usually so willing to talk about your good qualities. How come you're quiet right now? (laughs) Okay. So His Holiness says, I told her, this is not my concern. I am a Buddhist practitioner, and I'm not interested in such things. But she kept asking me until I got impatient and said, I don't, I don't think about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so being concerned with present reputation or our name in history is foolish. Yeah, but you think people aren't concerned about that? Surely they are. Yeah, even within a family, you want your descendants because your descendants are your legacy. Yeah, your biological descendants are your legacy, and you want them to know who their grandma was or their great aunt or whoever, you know, You are in relationship to that. I mean, people want to be known, and they want to have a legacy. They don't want to be totally forgotten. So, how do you want to be known? Okay. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm sure all of you have thought about it it's just you're getting very shy right now (laughs) okay I mean in Reiki circles didn't you want to be known as somebody yeah yeah but then after you die even though that was a long time ago. Yeah. Still, you remember there, and they'll talk about you. And now, maybe in Buddhist circles. Okay, what happens if we pretend she doesn't exist? Then she's going to get mad at us. <laughs> Hurt. Yeah. Okay. Being, uh, what does it say? We will not be alive to enjoy our reputation in history, so why worry about it? I had a phone call. Somebody uh, wanted to talk to me uh, one or two weeks ago, Uh, and his father came over to his house uh, for lunch one Sunday, you know, a family lunch, And uh, he didn't have a picture of his father in the house. The father got so upset. 
Yeah, so upset. There was a definite reason why the son didn't have a picture of his father in the house. Because there was, you know, there was a definite reason for it. Yeah, but the father got so angry. Yeah, you don't have a picture of me. And he was also concerned with what his other son's girlfriend would think that this son didn't have a picture of him in his house. Yeah? So, you know, we want to be known. We want to be recognized. Mm -hmm. If you go to your parents' house and they have pictures of all the kids but not one of you, <laughs> then what? Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A good reputation doesn't get us any closer to awakening. Our image is not important, but our motivation is. If our motivation is insincere, then even if everyone praises us, the glory will not last. But if we are sincere and straightforward, we will communicate well with others. Eventually, they will accept and appreciate our intentions, and that respect will last over time. Buddhist Sakyamuni was never concerned about his name or fame. But after nearly 26 centuries, people still love and respect him. Even non-Buddhists appreciate his message of nonviolence and compassion. And that's true. You know, in this country, people really appreciate that, yeah, even though they're not Buddhist. Great masters such as Nagarjuna remain simple Buddhist monks, however learned they may, however learned they became. Of course, when they debated the meaning of the teachings, they became more animated and spoke forcefully. But this was not done out of arrogance or desire. Some present Geshis are like that. In their ordinary life, they are so humble that we may even doubt whether they can walk properly. <laughs> but when they go to the debating courtyard, they suddenly become active and assertive. Okay. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah. Look at the great Indian sage Shantideva. This is a beautiful story. From his writings, we know that he was an intelligent, realized practitioner. I mean, Shantideva is like the best, isn't he? Yeah, the best. But in his daily life, he was so humble that people thought he only ate, slept, and defecated. And so this was the story that is always told before people teach, uh, you know, engaging in the bodhisattva conduct, that, uh, yeah, he was known as the monk who did three things, you know, eat, sleep, go to the bathroom. 
And, uh, and so all the monks thought he was really stupid and couldn't do anything properly and so on. And they wanted to kick him out of the, the monastery, but they needed a good reason to do it. So they invited him to give talks to the monks. And they set up the Dharma seat. They made a very big throne for him, but with no steps to get up to the throne. Yeah, you've seen the big thrones that His Holiness has, and, you know, you have to walk up. They made a throne that big, even bigger, um, but with no steps. So the idea is that Shantideva would get there. He couldn't even get on the Dharma seat. He would look totally like an idiot, and then, uh, you know, they would have to kick him out of the monastery. They could, had a reason to kick him out of the monastery. But Shantideva got to the Dharma seat, and he put his hand on the seat in front of all the other monks who were waiting to laugh. And he, lo- he pressed the seat down, sat on it, and then made it go up again. <laughs> and so he sat on it, and that's when he gave uh, the discourse on engaging in the Bodhisattva conduct. And when he got to chapter 9, which is about emptiness, he floated up in the air and disappeared into the sky, sky-like emptiness, until all they could hear was his voice teaching emptiness. Okay. But after that, he did leave the monastery. They didn't kick him out, but I think he figured he had enough. And I think they don't really know what happened to him after that. Some people think he just kind of became a hermit. Yeah, but he did uh, write another text, Shikshashamajaya. Okay. So from Shantideva, from his writings, we know that he was an intelligent, realized practitioner. Yeah. Um, But in his daily life, he was so humble that people thought he only ate, slept, and defecated. However, we see in the ninth chapter of Engaging in the Bodhisattva Deeds that in debate he could be relentless and fierce in counteracting wrong conceptions. Because that's what chapter nine is. You know, when you read it, he's just going boom, 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 and shooting down all these wrong ideas. Once, when he taught emptiness, he floated upward in space until he finally disappeared, and only his voice could be heard, displaying a superpower that flabbergasted the audience. Okay, so that's praise and approval. Sorry, uh, good reputation and bad reputation. Okay, now praise and approval and criticism and disapproval. So His Holiness continues, we love when people we like comment on our good qualities or competent work, and we become depressed when they point out our faults, criticize us, or blame us for things we may or may not have done. Due to this delight and dejection, our emotions vacillate drastically, as does our self-image. In an effort to win the approval of others and avoid their disapproval, we may sacrifice our ethical standards to win their favor. 
succumb to peer pressure to fit in, and make unwise decisions that have long-term consequences. Okay, again, the present situation in Washington, D.C. is an excellent example of this. Yeah, for people who want to look good or win the approval of a certain person, I won't mention who, you know, and avoid their disapproval because if you get a tweet about yourself, uh, you know, sent out to millions of people saying what a jerk you are, you're humiliated. So many people will sacrifice their ethical standards to win that person's favor. And we can see it, you know. And this is part of the confusion about the, you know, uh, that's happening during the virus. Yeah, a lot of the confusion is because people are afraid of blame and so they do not speak straightforwardly and they say what they think this person will please this person and as a result the entire country suffers and some people die yeah so this is a good example of the fault of attachment to praise and approval yeah and this is how people sell their soul you know, that, that expression, how you sell your soul. Because uh, you want to brown nose up to somebody and get in their good graces. Because that way you can get a promotion. Or you can get reelected. Or you could be famous. Or whatever it is. Yeah. So we may sacrifice our ethical standards to win their favor succumb to peer pressure to fit in, everybody else, yeah, everybody else in your party is voting a certain way on the impeachment issue, and you better go along with everybody else. And that's why I really respected Mitt Romney, you know, for, for being the one person who dared to say, I care about my ethical standards and I can't go along with one of the uh, uh, terms of impeachment. He, he only, there were two terms. He only disagreed with one. But he held his ground, and I really respect all the other people. Well, maybe we'll see. We'll investigate. What he did wasn't so good, but it's not impeachable. And oh no, what what he did was perfectly fine. He said it was perfect. It was perfect. You know. And how did we do that too? Yeah, I just point out this as an example. The the real point of this teaching is how do we do that? And, you know, when do we go along with things that we don't feel comfortable with, you know, or that we know aren't right in order to win people's favor? Yeah. Succumb to peer pressure to fit in and make unwise decisions that have long-term consequences, you know, just so somebody won't yell and scream at us or call us names or whatever. You see this in, in the whole thing of reporting 
abuse, too, the whole Me Too movement, how brave those women were being able to speak up, you know, and how uh, intimidated, you know, they could be because they would get attacked and humiliated and blamed and so forth. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they're overcoming that and, and speaking out was really remarkable. And look at the effect it had on the whole culture because so many women spoke up. In the hopes of winning someone's approval, we try to become what we think they think we should be. In the process of doing so, we lose touch with what we really think and feel and live in fear of accidentally doing something that would annoy the other person and garner their criticism. And you can see this in very abusive relationships. What happens? Somebody is so terrified that they, they... go along with things as a way of, you know, protecting themselves. I mean, that, that is a really extreme situation, yeah? And we can't blame them for that because there actually could be danger to their life if they didn't do it, okay? But here, you know, we don't have to think so extreme. How do we, um, you know build up this scene of, well, if, you know, I can't say anything about this because then da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da will happen. And and so we let something go, yeah, when it should, it is something where somebody is getting hurt and we need to speak up about it, okay? But then other times, uh, you know, it's, even small things, and we're so attached to our reputation that we just automatically cave in, you know, cave in, cave in, cave in. And, uh, you know, and so this is very different than, um, yeah, this is a people-pleasing activity, you know, when it really goes into being detrimental, when people-pleasing is detrimental, this is what happens, okay? But it's very different than uh, a bodhisattva, you know, giving up self-concern in order to do something beneficial for others or in order, this morning I was talking about giving up uh, things that we like in order to create harmony, okay? So... giving up things we like in order to create harmony is very different than giving up things we like out of fear of blame and criticism. The outside behavior may look like the same, but the inner motivation is completely different. You know, because one is, I want to create harmony. This pleases other people. Fine. You know, the other is, I'm terrified. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be blamed. Yeah. And so going along out of fear. 
or to, you know, I want praise. And so going along out of, uh, you know, the wish for praise. Okay, so we also have to differentiate the, the severe examples from this, this one of just, uh, you know, on small things doing it, okay? I, I don't want it to sound like when people don't report abuse that, uh, that somehow they're, they're uh, just doing it because they're attached to praise and don't want blame, you know? I mean, I don't want it to come across like that because there actually is, could be danger to them, yeah? Okay, when meeting uh, new people, we usually present our good side and may exaggerate our qualities to win their approval and affection, often not realizing the extent of our deceit and pretension until later. <laughs> Once they like us, we may take their friendship for granted and stop being so considerate of them. Okay, you like me, you said you love me, okay, now I'll relax and I'll, you know, and I'll be myself, which means I'll just say anything that comes into my mind without caring how it affects you, you know, that, that's really ridiculous. As a result, yeah, okay, so once they like us, we may take their friendship for granted and stop being so considerate of them. As a result, they criticize us we feel hurt and resentful, and difficulties in the relationship ensue. Our self-confidence plummets because it was based on the praise of others and not on our honest self-assessment. And we were being nice to the other person because we wanted their praise and we didn't want their blame. Yeah. Sometimes we become confused and don't know what to believe about ourselves, because one person praises us and another criticizes us for the same action in quick succession. I have found that it is better for everyone involved to be sincere, frank, and natural with others. And His Holiness is like that. You know, he is very frank. But not everybody around him is frank and straightforward with him. Yeah. But he really appreciates it when people are. I show what I am and do not pretend to be otherwise, no matter what others think or say about me. Being free of attachment to praise and reputation gives us the ability to relate as one human being to another. When I was in China in 1954, I met with some members of the Communist Party. They spoke to the point, and our discussions were very frank, and I liked some of them, at least for a while. But other officials were too polite. They were trying to impress me, and that made me suspicious of their purpose. Yeah. Have you ever met people who are just a little bit too polite and kind to you and it makes you a little bit uncomfortable 
or people who uh, sing their praises a lot. I heard this great story about His Holiness's brother, Nari Rinpoche. So let me remember how it goes. So, um, so one person was talking to Nari Rinpoche and doing this thing of really praising himself and trying to make a good impression on, on Nari Rinpoche, you know? And then in a certain, and so going on and on, and, you know, about his special connections and what he does, and, you know, he has power and ins and with this kind of thing. And at one point, um, Nari Rinpoche says, uh, you know, uh, do you play music? And the guy said, no, why? And uh, <laughs> I remember she said, you should really take up music. You toot your own horn very well. <laughs> you know? So he too is very frank <laughs> about that kind of thing. I thought that was so great. The eight worldly concerns are sneaky, even when we try to create virtue. Excellent practitioners will sometimes notice in the back of their minds the thought wishing to receive praise, respect, or offerings. Worse yet, are those who try and impress others with their knowledge or ability to perform rituals. Yeah, you get these people, you know, with, they, they, you know, the Tibetan text, you know, they read out of this, maybe with phonetics or whatever, you know. You know, and, and really try and impress other people. Yeah, it's now you see it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some get enamored with their own charisma. Yeah. In fact, praise doesn't benefit us in a substantial way. It doesn't increase our longevity, intelligence, or good health. Nor does criticism impede these. The law of karma and its effects is our true witness. Others may sing our praises, but we still have to experience the result of the destructive actions we create. Other people may criticize us, but they cannot destroy our merit or cause us to be born in an unfortunate rebirth. Our infatuation with praise and accolades is like thinking a rainbow has some substance. Yeah, it, it really is, isn't it? You know, you see that rainbow, it's so beautiful. The great Nyingma practitioner Longchen Rabchab said, See the equality of praise and blame, approval and disapproval, good and bad reputations, for they are just like illusions or dreams and have no true existence. Learn to bear them patiently as if they were mere echoes. 
and sever at its root the mind that clings to an I or a self. Beautiful, isn't it? Okay, then the fourth set, uh, you know, of the eight worldly concerns, pleasure and pain. So many of our actions are fueled by attachment to pleasurable sights, sounds, odors, tastes, and tactile sensations, such as feeling warm on a cold day and cool on a hot day, an aversion for their opposites, grating noises, disgusting food, sleeping on a bed that is too hard or too soft, and witnessing alarming sights. Securing the former, pleasure, and avoiding the latter, pain, becomes the purpose of most of our daily life activities. Isn't it? Yeah. Yet, as hard as we try, we are never able to make our lives entirely comfortable, which leaves us feeling grouchy and complaining. Our unhappiness does not come from inability uh, to control the environment so that we have uh, only pleasure, uh, pleasant sensory experiences. Okay? But our unhappiness comes from internal emotions of strong craving and aversion. So we think the unhappiness is because we can't control the environment and make it what we want. But really, the unhappiness comes from our internal craving and aversion. I want this. I don't want that. I like this. I don't like that. This is acceptable. This is not acceptable. My rule of the universe says I always have to be happy. Nobody can impede my happiness. Minus the craving and aversion, we may still have preferences, but are able to accept what life uh, brings us. Our frustration and worry decrease, giving way to enjoying uh, what is instead of pining for what isn't. Okay? So this is, is important. We may still have preferences. So giving up the eight worldly concerns, yeah, means giving up the attachment, the craving, and the aversion. We may still, with a wisdom mind, have preferences and make one decision over another or want one thing over another, but that is made with wisdom, not out of craving or aversion. The, our problem is we can't always tell the difference between a preference with wisdom and a preference that we're rationalizing because of craving and attachment. If we look at our mind, we could see. But often, we don't really want to look at our mind <laughs> and see that. Okay? So, uh, I... You know, in being around my teachers, I see that they have quite definite preferences for things. Yeah? They, uh, some things they want done 
in a very specific way. Other things, it's like, well, it doesn't matter. But some things, they are quite clear in how they want something done, you know. But it's not out of attachment and craving, okay? It's out of, you know, being organized or being practical or being uh, true to your precepts, okay? Because you look, you know, our teachers are not bumps on logs, yeah? Holiness is not a bump on a log. None of our teachers, they, they don't just go, oh, I have no attachment, I have no aversion, it just doesn't matter, just do what you want, it's all okay, treat me however you want to, make this decision, make that decision, I have equanimity, it's all the same. Yeah? They, they know quite clearly, you know, what the, what, uh, how things should be done. Yeah. Uh, at least the things that, you know, that they think should be done, you know, very closely. Other things they don't care about, okay? Um, so you really see that having preferences doesn't mean you have attachment uh, to pleasure and aversion to pain. It could mean that you're very clear in your wisdom and can see things clearly and, you know, make, the, make good decisions. I mean, could you imagine His Holiness when the when the Tibetans uh, when there was that period of uh, people self immolating and immolating in Tibet? You know, did His Holiness just say, "Well, you know, it's their choice, whatever they want. You know, it doesn't matter. Good, bad, who cares?" No, he wasn't like that. You know, he was quite clear. He was in a very difficult position because he couldn't say what they're doing is wrong because people were sacrificing their lives. But he also couldn't uh, condone it and say it was good. So what he said was, rather than die for Tibet, live for Tibet. Yeah. But... I think when the first guy burned himself in Dharamsala, I think His Holiness went down and saw him in the hospital. Yeah. But, you know, he, he wasn't just like a bump on the log. It's okay, you know. He, he speaks quite forcefully about things. So this pair may also be described as attachment to success and aversion to failure. Rather than allow our mind and self-esteem self -esteem to vacillate according to these, we can maintain a balanced attitude by contemplating interdependence. Su success does not, mean, does not depend on us alone. The efforts of many people are involved. So arrogance is uncalled for. Failure may be due to mistakes or to external circumstances that we cannot control. Learning from our mistakes is useful 
and accepting that we cannot control the world is practical. Both of these will calm our mind. Okay. So, uh, yeah. But when we look, this, this one about pleasure and pain, boy, and immediate sense uh, pleasure and having things our way and not wanting to experience any discomfort. Yeah. So, you know, that the attachment involved in that. That's why I was saying during uh, the morning teachings, if you're looking for the perfect meditation cushion, give up. Yeah. But we spend a long time looking for the perfect meditation cushion. (laughs) Yeah, there's got to be a perfect one out there because I want to be completely, you know, cozy and comfortable. Yeah, when we, as soon as we take a body like this, it's never going to be cozy and comfortable. Yeah, so we have to get used to physical discomfort. Yeah, because it's part of having a body. So, as they say, be careful what you ask for, because you might get it. Okay, now, the disadvantages of the eight worldly concerns. When we speak of dharma as distinct from non-dharma, the line of demarcation is the presence or absence of the eight worldly concerns. If our action is motivated by attachment to only the happiness of this life, it is considered non-dharma. Actions motivated by the aspiration to have a fortunate rebirth, to attain liberation, or uh, to attain Buddhahood are dharma actions. This does not mean that secular people or those of other religions do not create virtue. Anyone can refrain from harming others, cultivating, uh, refrain from harming others. Anyone can cultivate a kind heart. Anyone can create merit through generosity, forgiveness, and compassion. Okay? So we're not saying that only Buddhists can create virtue. Anybody can do it. Yeah? But what we're talking about is specifically what is a dharma action and what isn't, okay? And so that has to do so much with our motivation, okay? In the Pali Canon, the Buddha explains that the eight worldly concerns are encountered by both uninstructed worldly people and by knowledgeable aryas. But there is a big difference between how these two groups respond. When ordinary people receive gain, fame, praise, and pleasure, they do not reflect on these as being impermanent and subject to change. They do not know them as they really are in reality. And they think that these things are the actual cause of happiness. Okay? Instead, ordinary beings are delighted uh, and their common sense is swept away by elation. Yeah. Oh, look, 
I'm getting $1,200 from the government, and I didn't even ask for it. This is great. What can I go spend it on? Everything's closed. Yeah, why not give it away to some people who need it? Oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'll save it for when things are open. Yeah, then I can go get something really nice. I hear they're going to have a whole season of maroon at Macy's. (laughs) Then we can get anything we want. Okay. (laughs) Um, So when ordinary people meet with the opposite of these four, loss, disrepute, blame, and unpleasant sensations, they become dejected or angry. (laughs) Obsessed with their likes and dislikes, they continue to revolve in cyclic existence with its birth, aging, sickness, and death, and to be tormented by pain, grief, and despair. Their minds are never peaceful as they desperately try to procure everything that appears to bring them happiness and vehemently reject the reality of painful situations. I think it must be very difficult to be a famous movie star or sports star, you know, where you have your reputation and this image and you have to play all the time to keeping it up and being praised and not being blamed, and where it's so easy to uh, to be arrogant and have an inflated sense of our own value and then become very demanding, you know? Everywhere you go, it's got to be exactly like this because this is how I like it, yeah? I was one place in in someone's house where you could see, you know, the person was giving orders to the staff, and the staff were terrified, you know, running around trying to please this person over just small things. So do we want to be a person like that who is always has to have everything perfect exactly the way we like it. I felt very uncomfortable observing that, you know, but it was a situation I couldn't step in and and say anything in that situation. When instructed aryas come upon these concerns, however, they understand the four pleasant ones to be transient and changing. Understanding them as they really are, impermanent, unable to provide lasting happiness, and lacking their own independent essence. Their minds remain balanced. They do not become upset when loss, blame, disrepute, and unpleasant situations come their way. Giving up attachment to likes and aversion to dislikes, 
they seek a higher happiness, that of liberation, and create the causes to be free from cyclic existence. Speaking of the eight worldly concerns, the Buddha observes, the wise and mindful person knows them and sees that they are subject to change. Desirable conditions don't excite his mind, nor is he repelled by undesirable conditions. He has dispelled attraction and repulsion. They are gone and no longer present. Having known the dustless, sorrowless state, he rightly he understands rightly and has transcended cyclic existence. Yeah. So that's showing us how where to aim our practice, you know. We aren't there yet, but let's try and go in that direction. The eight worldly concerns center around attachment to the pleasures of just this life. Okay. So they you know it always says being attached to the pleasures of only this life. We may do some actions that have a Dharma motivation and have some attachment to the pleasures of this life. Okay? So there are many mixed kind of actions that, that happen when we practice. What we want to do is really purify the afflictive part of uh, our motivations. While this life is important, clinging to its pleasures is problematic. So this is it. We, we hear the disadvantages of the eight worldly concerns, and we think, I'm bad for being attached to four and having aversion to four. I shouldn't have these four. I'm bad. Look what a bad practitioner I am. Okay, That's not what His Holiness is saying. Yeah, that's not why we want to give up the eight, because we, we want praise, you know? It's because they're problematic. Yeah, they cause us problems. They make difficulties in our life. They create a lot of unhappiness. Okay? So it's so important in our Dharma practice that we recognize that when we relinquish so, certain things, it's not because somebody, some external force is telling us what we should do, and if we don't do it, we're a bad practitioner. You know? It's to look at and ask ourselves, is what I'm doing, is it bringing the happiness I want, or is it bringing confusion and pain? You know, And make our decisions based on that, not on trying to look good in somebody else's eyes or out of uh, resentment because we feel that somebody else is telling us how we, we should be. Okay, you're getting that? That's quite important. Because if we see all the Dharma instructions as somebody going, you, you are an awful person and you've got to change because you're bad, because you're attached to this. And, and that's why we start to do things. We're going to be a miserable Dharma practitioner and eventually we're just going to give up. 
Yeah, but nobody's saying that to us. Yeah, where is that coming from? Our own guilty mind. Yeah, it's coming from how we've been conditioned, either in this life or previous lives. So that's why it's important to look at the conditioning we've received, make up our minds whether we, whether we really believe that now or not, and then be able to look at our behavior and really assess, does this create the cause of happiness or does this create the cause of pain? You know? The Buddha does not say that pleasure is bad or evil. Okay? The Buddha does not say that pleasure is bad or evil. Pleasure is what it is. A nice experience that lasts a short while. Okay? Yeah, I got my chocolate chip cookie. It tasted good, and 30 seconds later, it's gone. Yeah? Did that bring me everlasting happiness? (laughs) Forget it. You know, I have to eat another chocolate chip cookie tomorrow. So it is fine to enjoy the good things we encounter, but becoming attached to them is another matter because the attachment and the aversion that arises when we cannot get what we like causes causes problems in this and future lives and distracts us from fulfilling our spiritual yearnings. Okay, that's what we have to examine in our meditation. You know, because we have certain bad habits, certain way, things where we just completely give in to our attachment and our craving. And so to just stop and take a step back and, and say, you know, how, how does this attachment, how is it affecting me? What results is it bringing this life? What kind of karma am I creating for future lives? And then really, really check that out. Okay? So here's what the seventh Dalai Lama said. Fantasies about material objects and the winds of tendencies towards the eight worldly concerns are completely misleading because of clinging to things that give only temporary fulfillment. At death, one is weighed down with the pain of a mind empty of virtue. The fourth pension lama, Losang Chuki Gyaltsen, said true practitioners of Mahamudra see that the eight worldly concerns are like dramas of madness. What a good expression. Yeah, next time you get really attached to something, Say, this is a drama of madness. <laughs> so, but, so real practitioners of Mahamudra see that the eight worldly concerns are like dramas of madness and prefer solitude. Solitude meaning separating the mind from ignorance, animosity, and attachment. 
In our attempts to obtain the four factors that superficially seem to bring happiness in only this life and to distance ourselves from the four undesirable ones, we create a great deal of negative karma. To protect our reputation, we talk behind other people's backs. To get more money, we cheat others or get involved in illegal business dealings. To win someone's approval or praise, we lie, hiding our mistakes and making up successes that we lack. In the long run, due to the functioning of karma and its effects, these actions bring suffering on us. Although seeking the eight worldly concerns seems to bring us happiness superficially, in the long term, it brings more misery. The eight worldly concerns make our viewpoint very narrow and self-centered. We become blind to karma and its effects and ignore the need to create the causes for well-being in future lives. Aspiring to liberation or awakening is far from our mind. The eight worldly concerns obstruct us from genuine dharma practice. Most of our distractions in meditation involve the eight worldly concerns. True or false? Yeah. When our mind wanders while listening to teachings, our attention has strayed to one of these eight. (laughs) Yeah. My knees hurt. When is she going to shut up? but I want to look like a good student. (laughs) Okay. We postpone positive deeds, such as generosity or helping others, because our time is occupied with these eight. For these reasons, Dharma practitioners are warned about seeking the temporary happiness of only this life, not because it is bad or sinful, but because it impedes us from actualizing the spiritual realizations that will bring long-term happiness. And that is our, you know, those spiritual aspirations are the real thing that's in our heart. Attachment to the pleasures of only this life breeds dissatisfaction. However much we have, it is not enough. I could use another shemmed up. I could use another jacket. I could use another blanket. I could use another computer or tablet. You know, how about a phone? Why can't we have phones at the Abbey? You know, all the monks in India have phones. Why can't we have one too? Aside from the fact that they don't work here, (laughs) usually. But some of them do. I want one of the ones that work. Yeah. You do have one. It's just difficult to stick in your pocket. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> True. We do have phones, but we can't stick them in our pocket. Because we don't have pockets in our robes. Why don't our robes have pockets? Yours do. Oh, yours do. Oh. 
now I have a new object of craving, robes with pockets. <laughs> Even wealthy people don't feel satisfied with what they have. No matter how much our loved ones praise us, we still want more. We long for another reward, trophy, or public acknowledgement of what we have accomplished. You know, dear, why don't you tell me you love me? You know, it's been eight hours <laughs> since you last told me. You know, I need to hear that you love me every day. You're not laughing. <laughs> True satisfaction eludes us. When we have worldly success, we easily become arrogant and haughty, flaunting our success and ignoring the needs of others. Therefore, mind training texts say that it is better to meet difficulties, for they make us humble and more compassionate. Difficulties flatten our haughtiness, and we learn to respect the concerns and feelings of others. Difficulties also deepen our refuge in the Three Jewels and spur us to be mindful of karma and its effects. So many good things come out of not getting what you want and getting what you don't want. Giving up attachment to the pleasures of only this life and the eight worldly concerns does not mean that we neglect ourselves and become a pauper. Although if you want to give all your money away, uh, you can put it here. You know? But uh, uh, we're not in encouraging anybody to do that. Uh, but just remember in case. Okay. So giving up attachment to the pleasures of only this life and the eight worldly concerns does not mean that we neglect ourselves and become a pauper. Some people make a big display of having renounced the world, yeah. but remain attached to their reputation as a renunciate. Yeah, look how renounced I am. We need a certain amount of possessions and financial support to function in society. Having wise friends and maintaining our health facilitate Dharma practice. Problems arise when we are attached to these and seek them to the exclusion of all else. Okay? So when we talk about being attached to friends and relatives, we're not saying don't have friends and relatives. Anyway, you got the relatives. You can't get rid of them, you know, <laughs> even if you want to. So don't want to. You have them, you know. Friends, it's fine to have friends. Have wise friends. Yeah. Really think about what are the kinds of qualities in people that you want to have as friends. Yeah, what kind of people will help you become a better person and will call you on things that you need to be called on? Hmm? Relinquishing attachment and aversion does not entail having a dull and boring life. Rather, our life becomes fuller 
because being free from the push and pull of delight and dejection, we are able to appreciate whatever comes our way. Instead of thinking, I can only be happy when I'm near this one special person, we become more open and enjoy the company of many others. In brief, the problem does not rest in the experience of pleasure or the objects that seem to bring pleasure. It is in clinging to the pleasure that is the trouble. It is clinging to the pleasure that is the troublemaker. So the Buddha says, they are not sensual pleasures, the pretty things in this world. A person's sensual pleasure is lustful intention. The pretty things remain just as they are in the world, but the wise remove the desire for them. Okay, and then uh, I'll read this passage from the inquiry of uh, Ugra Sutra. So in this sutra, the Buddha gives excellent guidance on how to deal with our addiction to the eight worldly concerns. Being free of attachment and aversion, the bodhisattva should attain equanimity with respect to the eight worldly concerns. If he succeeds in obtaining wealth or a spouse or children or valuables or produce, he should not become arrogant or overjoyed. If he fails to obtain all these things, he should not be downcast or distressed. Rather, he should reflect as follows. All conditioned things are illusory and are marked by involvement in fabrication. Thus, my father and mother, children, spouse, employees, friends, companions, kinfolks, and relatives, all are the result of the ripening of karma. Thus, they are not mine, and I am not theirs. Yeah, these people are in my life just because of the ripening of karma. We don't belong to each other. We don't possess other living beings. We don't even possess our own body. And why? Because my father, mother, and so on are not my protector, refuge, resort, place of rest, island, self, or whatever belongs to the self. If even my own perishable aggregates, sense sources, cognitive faculties and their objects are not me or mine, how much less are my father, mother, and so on, me or mine, or I theirs? And why? Because I am subject to my actions, my karma, and heir to my karma. I will inherit the results of whatever I have done, whether good deeds or bad. Uh, I will taste the fruit of every one of them and will experience the ripening of each one. Because these people are also subject to their karma and heir to their karma, they too will inherit the results of whatever they have done, whether good deeds or bad they will experience the ripening of every one of them and will taste the fruit of each one. 
It is not my business to accumulate non-virtuous deeds for their sake. All of them are a source of pleasure now, but they will not be a source of pleasure later on. Instead, I should devote myself to what is really mine, to the virtues of generosity, ethical discipline, self-restraint, fortitude, good character, exertion, vigilance, and the accumulation and production of the seven awakening factors. That is what is actually mine. Wherever I may go, these qualities will go with me. A lot of wisdom in that passage, huh? If you have uh, questions or comments. Tugjay watching online is asking if you could give some examples of having mixed motivations or you both have a Dhamma motivation and a worldly motivation. Mm, mm. When you see a family member who's sick, yeah, you have compassion because they're suffering. Yeah. But you also have some attachment to them because you care about their suffering more than you care about other people's suffering. Okay? So the compassion for their suffering is really wonderful. What we want to do is broaden the scope of that compassion so it can go to more living beings. I think the um, gathas are really helpful, the gathas. Um, the gathas, yes. Um, to train the mind to turn it towards others, benefiting mm-hmm. others constantly in every action we are doing, such as sitting down or drinking tea or yeah. something like that, something mundane. Um, I wanted to share uh, the, this, this thing about um, dying and uh, wanting to be now and for something. Um, actually, when I really think about it, I, I have to think more about it, but I think I want to be known as, you know, because I had got some feedback in earlier years that I went the past to practice Buddhism, mm-hmm. that I followed actually my heart intention. And people um, such as my family, uh, my sisters, uh, my sister and my brothers, like uh, looking upon that with, oh, she did something she really wanted and she followed her dreams, so to say. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think I want to be known as somebody who is inspiring others to do what they really want to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 That's a good thing to be able to inspire people about. Yeah. yeah. What, what I've learned is it's good to aspire to be that kind of person, but don't think too much about it. Because as soon as you try and make yourself into that kind of person and expect other people to be inspired by you, (laughs) my experience is it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm just warning you because I've done that. (laughs) This quote from the... Um, Buddha in the Pali Canon. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not sensual pleasures, the pretty things in the world. A person's sensual pleasure is lustful intention. So is he saying that the pleasure comes from the attachment? That's what the pleasure is? It's yeah. not the thing itself? Yeah, the pleasure is not coming from the object. The pleasure is coming because our mind has, we've told ourselves. 
We've inflated the good qualities of that object and told ourselves this object will make us happy. Yeah. So when we're unhappy, the problem is not that we didn't get what we wanted. The problem is the craving that was obsessed with getting it. Yeah. That's what causes us unhappiness. Is not the fact that we didn't get what we want, but the craving that is so stuck on that. And then we can't get it. That, you know. So that's what is, Holiness is saying. That there's nothing wrong with pleasure. What, what's the troublemaker is when we're holding to it. Yeah, And we have some pleasure. We don't want to give it up. Or we don't have it, but we see it just over the horizon. And my sticky fingers are ready to grab it. Uh, this part of the, the big quote, thus my father, mother, children, spouse, employees, friend, companions, kinfolk, and relatives are all the results of the ripening of karma or my actions. Thus they are not mine and I am not theirs. So what that is saying is that this is all just... Their karma ripens to meet us, and our karma ripens to meet them, and that's it. There's nothing mine about it. Because when I look at my relationship to that circle of people, I think it's all about me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do, don't we? My family, my friends, yeah, my group, my team, my tribe, the people who understand me, and yet, why, why am I born who I am? Out of karma. Why are they born who they are? Out of karma. We know each other. We're close this life. At the time of death, different karma ripens. We could be separated for a long, long time. And when we meet again, we don't know in what kind of relationship. Yeah. So that's why we want to dedicate to always having wise friends. Yeah? And dedicate to, to meet fully qualified teachers. Yeah. So that we can, you know, through our karma, uh, be able to connect with these people in our future lives. Uh, someone else is asking, um, how exactly does karma work? What about if you did something wrong without meaning to? Um... What do you think? If you look, there's different qualities that make an action complete. Okay, you have the action, you have different factors that make the motivation. You have, I mean, you have the object, you have the different factors that make the motivation. You have the action, you have the completion of the action. Now, if there was no intention to harm, you know, a big chunk of the factor of motivation is gone. Yeah. So there may be some result, but it's not a full karmic action that's going to bring a, a, a rebirth. Um, this teaching reminded me of the, something that happened the very first time I traveled with you as a lay person. Mm -hmm. And back then, um, I remember I used to iron venerable children's donka because I thought if she looked 
If her donker looks crumpled when she's speaking, people will think her assistant did not do a good job. <laughs> so it was all about my reputation. And I ironed the donker with a lot of care to make sure the collar was standing up, you know. And then one day she came and said, are you ironing my donkers? I said, yes. And she said, I haven't ironed anything since I was in the 70s <laughs> because I'm a hippie. She said, please stop. <laughs> and I was really shocked. I was like, you, you don't iron your clothes? And I was like, the nuns don't iron their clothes. And it's true, we don't. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, but that's, uh, that's the level of my attachment to reputation. Yeah. And I remember when you were, um, you were giving me hints about what to say. Yeah, tell, tell, talk about that. <laughs> no, because the whole... Being someone's assistant or attendant, right? The, what I had done was to staff politicians, right, where you make sure they look good. You prepare their talking points. So we were in Indonesia, and I was like, "You can't say that. <laughs> you need to be saying these things." Or, you know, and my brother was like, "Who is this crazy lay person?" <laughs> yeah, she wanted me to look good, and it was her responsibility. Otherwise, she would look bad if I didn't look good. You know, because she thought I was like a Singaporean politician that she was working for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was going, why are you telling me what to do and what to say, you know? <laughs> so I remember that so well. <laughs> really funny. Tell Venerable Chun, you, or I, I had a note to myself like, always pack a travel iron. Yeah. Okay.